right, good morning. morning. If you guys are doing well, it is great to be back with you. Uh, My family sends their greetings. We, uh, my family is actually like normally sick. It's kind of surprising. I don't know about you guys, but we've been insanely healthy this year because of the masking and all that. And uh, one of my little guys started throwing up. We're like, oh yeah, you know, the flu or whatever. That happens. Um, But (laughs) we're all doing pretty well. a lot of lying around under blankets um, with tiny little bodies, so it's been fun. Uh, all right, so if you could turn with me to Acts 2. Uh, I have actually preached this particular Sunday on the calendar a lot at Stonybrook, and it's interesting now to preach kind of an event that's on the other end of Palm Sunday, but I think connects really well. Uh, if you've been here while um, I'm preaching, I'm doing kind of a parallel series on the book of Acts called family history, where we are looking at the beginning of the church uh, in Acts. And to, to set this moment where we've been is Jesus died, was resurrected, and his disciples have been waiting for the Spirit. And the Spirit descends, and they speak in tongues, and they are, there's this miraculous showing, and all the nations are hearing the proclamation of the gospel, but they're very confused about what's going on. Uh, many of them accuse the disciples of being drunk or something like that. And Peter stands up and he delivers this message as an explanation to a very large crowd, as we will soon see. So let's read this passage. It's a little long, uh, as I might tell you if you were one of my students in my English class. Hang with me and focus. You can do it. You're smart. All right. So let's look at Acts 2, starting in 22. This is Peter standing before a crowd assembled. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent 
and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. May we receive it. May we hear a challenge and the comfort. The challenge to seek you as king and the comfort that you have come to seek us. And in Jesus' name, amen. So there's a movie from 1955 starring um, Orson Welles called Mr. Arkadin. And uh, the idea is that Orson Welles plays this billionaire, kind of mysterious guy with this, this troubled past. And he hires a private detective to piece his life together. And his thinking is, if this private detective can figure my life out, then I could figure out how other people could figure out my life and stop that from happening. He wants the past to stay in the past. Well, at one point, he ends up, uh, the private detective discovers some terrible things about Mr. Arkadin, as you might expect. And uh, Mr. Arkadin, they're at a party together. The scene, Orson Welles is a massive presence. He's very popular. Everyone's listening to him speak. And he tells this story, and this story is kind of, uh, it's meant for the detective, though he's telling it for the whole room. And he says to everyone, he says, I'm going to tell you a story about a scorpion. The scorpion wanted to cross a river, so he asked the frog to carry him. No, said the frog, no thank you. If I let you on my back, you may sting me, and the sting of the scorpion is death. Now, where, asked the scorpion, is the logic in that? For scorpions always try to be logical. If I sting you, you will die, and I will drown. So the frog was convinced and allowed the scorpion onto his back. But just in the middle of the river, he felt a terrible pain and realized that, after all, the scorpion had stung him. Logic, cried the dying frog as he started under, bearing the scorpion down with him. There is no logic in this. I know, said the scorpion, but I can't help it. It's my character. That just about sums up human nature in about 20 seconds, doesn't it? (laughs) uh, We so frequently are self-destroyers. Logic, where is the logic in this? I don't know. It's in my character. My first year at the Stony Brook School, a student that uh, I was really close to got expelled for just reason. and We took a walk together to discuss his future and the decisions he would make. And there were two options on the table for him. And one was unbelievably clearly superior. Uh, it was a place where he could maybe recover and find some help and, and bounce back. And the other was incredibly dangerous for him and self-evidently terrible. Um, and that was the one he wanted. And I, it, was a star, it was a remarkable conversation with this young man, not because a young man was making a bad decision, but because he was so transparent about it. As we were walking around, I could tell him, you recognize that if you make the decision you're about to make, if you put yourself in this new situation, things will go very badly for you. And he would say, yeah, I think that's right. And you recognize that there's this other decision over here where if you, if you go this way, you could potentially be okay. You could find life. Things can go well. And he's like, yep. I'm like, And you still choose this one over here. You still choose the decision that leads to, to death and struggle. And he's like, yep, that's what I want. And there wasn't really much more to say. 
you know, except to pray for him and, and hope that things ended well for him. Uh, he was knew he was choosing death, and that's what he wanted. And I think, actually, we do this fairly often. The most tempting delusion for a teacher uh, is that it can be tempting to believe that if I just present the truth correctly, that people will accept it. If I just say it the right way, then you'll make the right decision. If I just present the gospel or Christianity in a way that's compelling, then you will be forced to submit to the truth, right? Um, you hear it a lot. If we just educate people, uh, then they'll be better. Ultimately, I think this is a weird desire to override people's agency, right? Uh, it's a desire for me to have control. But the truth is, people have agency. We make decisions, and we affect the world around us, and those decisions are often bad ones. It's in our character. Not crazy often, but every now and then, you'll meet a parent who's dead set on rescuing their child from any consequences. If their child fails, it isn't really their fault, it's the system or the hands they were dealt or the teacher failed to communicate or something. What the parent doesn't realize that they are doing is that they are communicating to their child that their child's actions ultimately do not matter, that they don't have agency, that they cannot fail and therefore they can't succeed. The end result is the same. Occasionally, the best thing you can do for someone is to let them fail is to let them learn the truth, that we often want what destroys us. We have to learn that deep down we're not always very good. In fact, it goes beyond that. Deep down, as Peter addresses us in this passage, we frequently, violently reject God's rule. We believe we can do better. This can look a whole variety of ways. It can look really respectable, it can look really terrible, but I think, and if we're honest with ourselves, frequently we say, I know what's good for me. I know what's right. And when God lines up with me, that's really nice. But when he doesn't, I still think I'm right. That's what I'm going to do. It is our character. We kill the frog when we're crossing the river, and logic has nothing to do with it. We want autonomy, even if that autonomy costs us our lives. But here's the goodness of the gospel. The goodness of the gospel that Peter lays out for us here is that even though we frequently set ourselves up as enemies of God, Jesus comes for his enemies. That's the double whammy. We are enemies of God, and that's who Jesus came for. Even though, even though, when we frequently enter into situations, on the most, the biggest societal level and on the personal level, we're supposed to bring life into things, and we so frequently bring death, that's the type of person that Jesus has come for. So our main point today is just this, because Jesus came for his enemies, we know that he came for us. Because Jesus came for his enemies, we can know that he came for us. And I want to look at three ways that Jesus comes for us in this sermon from Peter. He came for us in history. He came for us in, our, in theology. I'll explain that. And he comes for us right now. History, theology, right now. Uh, a shout out to John Stott who kind of broke that down for me. I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about this passage. So firstly, Jesus comes to us in history. Peter begins by talking about the miracles. If we look at verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. He starts with this. He's like, hey, remember, Jesus came and he did all these miracles. 
And I want you to notice one thing. There is no one at this time refuting that particular point. There's no one saying, I don't really think Jesus did any miracles. The miracles he did were frequently incredibly public. I mean, if you say, hey, Jesus, we had no food and suddenly 5,000 people are fed, that's an easy thing to disprove if that didn't happen, right? Uh, when Jesus resurrects Lazarus from the dead and it happens at a funeral where a bunch of people are around and everybody's watching him, the miracles of Jesus aren't like, and he snuck in at 2 a.m. and resurrected Lazarus. They're right there in public. They're so public that even the people who want him to die are not saying, are you sure he did that? What they're saying is, I think he actually does it through Satan's power. That's their best, that's their best claim against him. It's not that he didn't do the miracles. It's, oh, that's, that's not God, that's Satan. In John 12, 9, we get this. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. Big crowds are showing up for Lazarus, because they've heard about it. And the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The miracles are so front and center that they are, the chief priests are like, should we go around trying to cover these up? Should we kill Lazarus? Oh, he's not resurrected. He's dead over there. Ha! You know? So Jesus was a known miracle worker, and it was clear his miracles were good. He wasn't running around doing evil things. He wasn't killing people with these miracles. Eh, it's, pretty, it's pretty irrefutable that he is doing good things on account of these miracles. Even the chief priests are saying things like, oh, yeah, yeah, he, he, uh, he heals people, but he does it on the Sabbath, which is just an amazing argument. Oh, so what? He can bring people from the dead. He did it on the wrong time, you know. Uh, we do it on the right time. Um, so Peter is saying, look, you had all the miracles laid out. Jesus did them all in front of you. Everyone saw them. And as a brief aside, if someone actually did what the scriptures claim they did, I think the creation of Christianity is a reasonable response. If somebody showed up and 5,000 people are fed and people are being resurrected and this testimony spreads like wildfire, the sudden creation of Christianity suddenly it becomes the most dominant religion of the world within 100, 200 years. Feels like a reasonable reaction to that event. So Peter says, here's the history. He also says, not only that, the scriptures were preparing you for this. David was talking about him pretty clearly. David has this passage about somebody who's raised from the dead. Couldn't be about David. He's dead over there. It had to be about something else. The scriptures were talking about him. Something different is going on with Jesus. You know, uh, so back in the day, they sought to undermine the historicity of this account by claiming it was demonic. Uh, but now I think we have a modern version of this, and it's not accusing Christianity of being demonic or Jesus of being demonic. It accuses Christianity of kind of holding back the individual from their full potential. That seems to be a, a dominant frame. Jesus isn't really for you. If you follow Jesus and all those old rules, it'll hold you back from the full expression of yourself and full authenticity. Yeah, maybe Christianity is responsible for starting hospitals and charitable organizations all over the world, but primarily it's a religion devoted to keeping people from being themselves is kind of the claim. One current trend uh, is that, and I think social media has helped this, is these kind of deconversion stories, um, deconstructionist stories, where, where somebody says, you know, here I was, 
I was a Christian, but now I've seen the truth that it really holds me back, and here's what's happened. Um, and there are lots of public figures who've done this in the last couple of years. Some of you may know who uh, Derek Webb is. He was a Christian singer-songwriter. I loved him very much and, you know, still pray for him. Uh, and he was a Christian artist. He meant a lot to me personally as I was coming along. And a few years ago, he divorced his wife and deconverted from Christianity. And is, I don't know how he, would, how he would describe himself, maybe an agnostic. Uh, and when he did that, it was hard for me to handle, and I knew that he had done a podcast where he explained why he had rejected Christianity, and honestly, I was really nervous to listen to it, because his voice had been so formative for me for so many years, I thought, like, what if, what if he's found a really good argument, you know? Uh, and when I finally took the time and sat down and listened to it, it was almost disappointingly benign. I was like, man, this is the same thing. When you listen to these stories, it's interesting that the big emphasis is not on history. It wasn't like Derek Webb suddenly discovered that Jesus wasn't resurrected. It was more like dealing with the implications of that story he no longer could accept. Kevin DeYoung describes these stories better than I could. He says that we all believe in a salvation story. The Christian message tells of sin, repentance, and forgiveness. This secular salvation tells the story of self, authenticity, and acceptance. Instead of a sin committed against a holy God, we have infractions committed against the self. We don't struggle to keep God's law, we struggle to keep our own internal sense of right and wrong. The problem is not that we offend God, but our personal integration and identity. Instead of repentance before a holy God, we have authenticity of self-expression. And instead of forgiveness from a holy God, we have the casual acceptance of simply being the way we want to be. And lastly, he says this, we are all telling a story, living by a story, evangelizing by a story. One is ancient and rugged, the other modern. One confronts, the other caresses. One truly saves, the other falsely suckers. Choose your story wisely, for one starts grim but ends in life. The other looks cheery and ends in death. It was interesting, I was reading, uh, I looked on Derek Webb's Twitter page recently, and he had just retweeted, Sinners saved by grace is codependence. And he meant it as an accusation. That the idea that we're saved by grace and dependent on God is just a way to deny us our agency. And I want to read that and go, amen. Uh, yes. I mean, more than that, more than codependency, it's total dependency on God. That's what it is. It, it does look like weakness. It does feel like losing our agency because we are submitting to God. And I do that because I am the scorpion who stabs the frog when I'm crossing the river. Because when I'm left to my own devices, I screw things up royally. Everyone who's had close relationships knows it. You know it. It's so frustrating uh, when you, I guess you have an idealized view. I don't know if other people have had this experience. But before my wife and I had kids, you think you're like a realist. You know, I know who I am. And just those times when you flip out on your kids, you're like, ah, man, I am worse off than I thought. You know, I need help. I need something else. Many of us have doubts. All of us have doubts. My push for you, firstly, is don't live in your doubts without taking the historical evidence seriously. Think about it. Think about the uh, testimony of the scriptures and the historical evidence. There's lots of good stuff out there. Go read it. Go find it. Read the historical critiques of the Christian story for sure. Read the ones in defense. And if you find yourself doubting at the exact place where the pressure of culture is the strongest, I would say pause and ask yourself why that is. 
it's interesting that a lot of these stories are about, I changed my mind about Christian sexual ethics. It's not something else. Well, that just happens to be the place right now where culture and Christianity seem the most opposed. And so if you find yourself struggling with doubts, particularly on a point where the conflict is the hardest, I would suggest distrust of yourself a little bit. Like, that feels a little convenient that right now, this is the issue I am struggling with. If we worship a God that agrees with everything that we say, I don't think we worship God. But I would also say to this, if you're someone who struggles with doubts, look who's speaking. This is Peter. This is the guy who just prior, when somebody said, hey, do you believe in Jesus? He was like, uh-uh. Nope. And not just anybody, a little kid is standing there right the fire like, hey, aren't you that guy with Jesus? He starts cursing out this small child who's accusing him of just hanging out with Jesus. That's Peter. And now look at the guy. He's standing in front of a crowd of thousands of people saying like, here's the truth. So do you think that somebody knows about doubt? It's this man right here. And look what the Spirit has done with him. If you doubt, you're in good company. Peter is the one who doubted, and he took that doubt to Jesus. If you're someone in your heart who cries frequently, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? I don't see you. You're in good company, not just with Peter. That's what Jesus says from the cross. Jesus comes to be with us in our doubts. That's amazing. He comes to be with us in our doubts. It's not us and God over here. It's us and Jesus walking together. That's the goodness of Jesus. You are not alone. So Peter says, Jesus comes to us in history. But he also says this, Peter, Jesus comes to us in theology. And look at this, theology being the study of God, meaning something bigger than just this moment. Look at uh, verses 23 and 24. This Jesus, delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So what I mean by Jesus comes to us in theology is this is not just an isolated event. This is not like, hey, one time I saw some guy hit a half-court shot. That was pretty cool, right? One time there was a guy who died, and then he came back to life. Who knew? That's not what it is. It has implications that resonate throughout all of history. It's like this event. You drop it, and it goes back into the past and into the future. Everything before is leading up to it. The sacrifices are made depending on it, and everything after is in light of it. It's this action that draws us closer to God, that has resonance, that, where are we? We're on Long Island. I'm talking about something that happened in the Middle East thousands of years ago because of what it meant for us and what it meant for all of humanity. Now, the first big theological claim is Peter says, hey, you guys killed him. <laughs> now, why is that theological? Why isn't that just historical? Isn't Peter just calling a spade a spade? Isn't this actually the crowd that killed Jesus? Well, I would say this. Firstly, yes, there was a group of people who wanted Jesus dead, and he was killed. And several of them were probably in that crowd. But there are a lot of people there that I don't think were directly responsible for the physical death of Jesus. And we know that. We know that there are people who followed along as he was being crucified, particularly in the Gospels. The women are so loyal to Jesus. The men flee. The women are the heroes of the Gospels. They follow along after Jesus. They're, they're committed to him. The person who dies on the cross proclaims that there's something special about him. He's Lord. There are people there who are not responsible for the death of Jesus. 
So what is Peter saying? How could he say to this whole group, you killed him, when several were probably totally innocent of that act? Well, John Piper puts it this way. I think it's great. He says, Peter can say it because everybody in that crowd was involved in the crime against Jesus that brought him to his death. The essence of the crime against Jesus was not ending his physical life. Wait for it. The essence of the crime against Jesus was the rejection of God in Jesus' life. The essence of the crime against Jesus was the rejection of God in Jesus' life. That's the crime. The heart is the same. It's not, well, there's this super small group that actually killed Jesus. People have made that argument before, and it's, it leads to anti-Semitism, I think. Peter's saying something much bigger. He's saying, we, it's in our character. We're the scorpion. We are the ones who reject the fact that God is in Jesus, that Jesus is God. That's what we have to repent of, and that is why we are guilty, because we are guilty of putting up a flag that is our own and not God's. We have to repent of believing that we run our lives and we decide how things should go. This is what Peter is calling people to. There's this famous song by Joan Osborne back in 95. Some of you remember this, the What If God Was One of Us song. I don't actually love it, but it gets stuck in my head all the time, and I don't know why. Uh, and the first verse was, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? Well, we kind of know the answer. John says he was in the world the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. What if God was one of us? We would reject him, is the answer. Now, some people really struggle with this uh, because they could say, this is too simplistic. I don't like this idea that there's like people who accept God and people who don't, and that's kind of it. It's like good, bad. When I look at the world, I don't see two types of people. I see good and bad on a scale. And there are truly evil people, and there are truly saintly people, but there's a lot of gray in the middle. And what about those people who basically live decent lives? They look out for their families, they do well at work, etc. Well, I would say two things to that. I'm very sympathetic with that person, but I would say two things to that. Firstly, I think that betrays that we have not understood how salvation works. Salvation is not by what we do. It is by Christ and Christ alone. So if our first argument is to say, what about this? This person's really good, this person's really bad, what's the... We're, we're not looking to Christ. It is Christ who saves, period. Jesus, Jesus sells parables about this, where people come to work in the field really late, and they still receive full payment. And people say, that's not fair. And he's like, that's, that's right, that's the gospel, it's not fair. But the second thing is this. Uh, the second thing is, William Smith has this great illustration. He said, take a pirate ship. Hang with me. Take a pirate ship. I think my boys are listening, so they'll probably enjoy this one because it has pirates. Uh, if you take a pirate ship, maybe on this pirate ship, the pirates are really good to each other. Maybe they dole out their work really well. They do things right. They split the spoils respectably. They make sacrifices for each other. They try to heal each other. They do all these things. They're brave in battle. Maybe they have lots of virtues. But at the end of the day, the flag over the ship is in rebellion. And so even those good acts where you could look and say, man, those are good acts, and in fact, I would say those acts betray 
that you have something bigger going on, that you were made for something better than being a pirate. No matter what, even all those good acts are in service of this ultimate rebellion. That's what the gospel says. The gospel's not saying they're only like Christians do amazing things and everybody else does terrible things. That's not true. And that's not true when we look around at the world. What it says is fundamentally, we either serve ourselves or we serve God. We serve under the banner of God or we serve under the banner of ourselves. Peter is not saying that everyone in the crowd is the worst version of themselves. He's not saying that everyone there lacks virtue. He's saying, we're on the wrong ship. God showed up and our hearts betrayed us. We, we killed God. It showed that we are so fundamentally on the wrong ship that even though we're so religious, we know all the scriptures, we saw all the miracles, we had everything to accept him. We still turned against him. And Peter did too. At the end of the day, the flag over this thing, he's saying, is the flag of our own autonomy, not God's, and that's a problem. Something has to change. Something has to change for us, too. It's not good enough to be the person cleaning, you know, cleaning the dishes well on the pirate ship or serving the people on the pirate ship. We've got to, we've got to change the flag. So Jesus comes to us in history. He comes to us in theology. And lastly, he comes to us right now, in this present. So if we look at 32 through 36, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Footstool. Look, all the house of Israel, therefore, and know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So then Peter drops this. Not only did God show up, this guy show up, claim he's God, we killed him. All these miracles you're seeing right now, it's still him doing stuff. He's still acting in the world right now. And if this is a movie, this is the, or book, this is the Count of Monte Cristo moment. This is like, the mask is ripped off and uh-oh, that guy we thought was dead is alive and we're all in trouble, right? That's how it should feel. That guy you killed, that wasn't a nobody. You killed God. And it feels like the next step is, and we are done. It's over. We killed the wrong guy. Sorry. But that's not what Peter says. He says that Jesus did something really amazing. That Jesus came for his enemies. And Peter knows this because Peter was Jesus' enemy when he denied him. And what Peter is saying is even that death of Jesus, God just neatly folded into his plans. It is the means by which he is going to save all of us. So, how do we accept this mercy? How do we switch ships? How do we sail across the water without stabbing the frog? And if you're just jumping in and listening to this sermon, that would make no sense to you. Uh, Peter gives the answer in 37 through 41, and it's interesting, they were cut to the heart. The Spirit convicts them. Some of you have felt this, the kind of cut to the heart, this divine cut, like, ah, I am just going the wrong direction. I have not fully submitted myself to the king 
And they cry out, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repentance doesn't just mean, you know what, I'm going to quit being so mean, or I'm going to try to be less gluttonous. It's a total about face. It's the life is now submitted to God, not to myself. I am no longer the authority, God is. The whole life trajectory is changing. Uh, when I was in college, um, I remember distinctly a moment. Uh, I had struggled with doubts for a while, and primarily where my doubts ended up, similar to a lot of the stories I've read, they weren't historical. I actually fully believed in God, and I believed in the resurrection of Christ. Uh, I used to joke with people that I even did my atheism in front of God. Uh, I would be like, I don't believe in you now. What are you going to do? You know, uh, I couldn't, um, I couldn't kind of get away. But I, I struggled a lot to believe that God was for me. That's probably the big doubts, and that happens to me occasionally to this day. And in college one day, I was refereeing basketball for uh, rec league, and if you ever want to know about human nature, do that. Um, and I'm driving to this basketball game, and as is typical in kind of the trajectory of my doubts, there's only so long I think you can spend believing God doesn't love you before you have to get distance, and that distance kind of looked like a type of disbelief totally. And as I was driving to the basketball game, I remember kind of thinking, I'm not, what if he's, what if this is a joke? You know, he's not even there. And at halftime of that game, I'm, I'm standing on the court waiting for the game to start. And this just sudden kind of image or sensation of Christ on the cross hit me. And what it communicated was, you don't think I love you? What more can I do to show you that I love you than this? And it was so overwhelming, I had to sit down, like in the middle of the court. And uh, that moment, I was hit by all three, the history, Christ's death on the cross, the truth of that action, and his resurrection, the theology, that it didn't just mean some guy died, it meant, I love you this much. It's never true that I'm not for you. It's never true that I don't love you. And if you think that, look to the cross, look what I suffered on the cross. I love you with everything. And the present appeal in that moment, the call was, and now the appeal is to you, except that's true. Except that's true. That you are my son. You are my daughter. What God is trying to convince us. I have life in my hands for you. That is what I'm about. He respects us enough to allow us to exercise that autonomy. But that appeal is always there to submit to the king who loves us and gives us life. So the application of this is this message that Peter gives was not just for this group 2,000 years ago. It's here for us right now. That's the appeal. That's the application. This is why the gospel is always offensive because it always is saying like, and right now you could make a decision about this. It's inherently relational. It's not something we objectively adhere to. It's not something we kind of believe abstractly. It's not like learning a math problem. It is who is the king? Is it God? Is it me? And that call goes out for me. That call goes out for us this very morning. So if, if you are hearing this and you feel, you know, I think I've assented maybe just mentally. I think 
I've lived a life that looks pretty good, but, or maybe I've lived a life in out-and-out rebellion, the, the call is, that ship goes down. It does. Any belief that we are fully in control is shattered like that. We know that's true. But there is a way towards life. We have set ourselves up as enemies of God, and Jesus came for his enemies. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to be awesome. He came for people who weren't awesome. He said, I did not come for the healthy. I came for the sick. You and me, we're the sick. And thank God that Jesus came for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you came for the sick. I thank you for the freedom in that. I thank you that you did not ask us to reach some impossible bar that you would then love us. But like a good father to his children, you love us irregardless. You give us the spirit that draws us to you. Father, if there are people in uh, this room who have been struggling with doubts of late, comfort them, Father. Help them to see that you came to be with them in their doubts. Father, if any of us are struggling, believing that you love us, help us to see the weight of the historical truth. Help us to see the weight of the theological truth. And help us to feel the pull of the Spirit of God towards you. We know that you love us. Remind us again. And in Jesus' name, amen.